Good morning and welcome. My name is Brian from Valleytown Church. And we as a church, we've been going through a series uh, structured by the, the kind of the skeletal structure is Hebrews 11, which is often referred to as the Hall of Faith. And as a result, we've looked at the lives of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, some individuals who were commended for their faith. They were credited as righteous because of their faith. And we've, as a result, better understood how we too are gifted righteousness by placing our faith, by believing in right Jesus, by placing our trust in him, the Messiah that God had provided. Now, what's also at play here, and I'm going to begin to tease out, is, is this relationship between faith and salvation. And this is where we definitely get into a little bit of murkier waters, possibly. Because in the family of God, there are multiple legitimate possible beliefs about how we are saved and how our faith relates to that. And to what degree is that faith a choice? Or is it solely a gift? Is it something that God had ordained before time, unrelated to who we are as individuals, but connected solely to the fact that he chose us for some reason not yet known to us? And so it's definitely going to be interesting. My goal is, over the next sermon or three, uh, to eventually hit Romans chapter 9 which is one of the most challenging and possibly controversial uh, passages in the Bible that shapes Christian understanding of how we are saved and how we relate to God in this way. But today I'm specifically going to focus on this thinking of presumed safety as children of Abraham, and it's going to start teasing out those other ideas as well. And so uh, eventually we'll look at Romans chapter 9, in which I think that idea is, is being explored as well. But today uh, I just want to talk about this idea uh, that the children of Abraham are those who share the faith of Abraham. And we've actually already explored this idea a little bit in a sermon called Abraham's Offspring. And we read the verse in Galatians 3 uh, verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And so it's not sufficient simply to be related to him in order to have this favor and relationship with God. And it's also not exclusionary if you lack that relatedness to Abraham to have relationship with God. That the invitation is broad and to all. That if we place our faith in God, we can become children of God. But before I get there, I want to take a look at uh, a couple of generations past Abraham and look at some of what Moses instructed the nation of Israel, right? The family that was named after the name that God gave Jacob, Israel, okay? Uh, and this is what Moses said toward the end of his life after he's been leading them for I think it was about 40 years, if I'm not mistaken. In Deuteronomy 29, verse 18, this is what he is lovingly and warning uh, these people that he cares for. And he cares about the future generation. So he, like Abraham, is generationally minded. He's thinking about what's going to happen to these people as they serve God in his absence. So Deuteronomy 29, verse 18, he says, Beware. 
lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit, one who when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. And so uh, what I want to point out here is that Moses warns lovingly. He says, beware twice in this instance and says that it's possible that you as a descendant of Abraham might say in your heart, like, you know what? I'm, I'm safe, even though I'm stubborn in my heart, even though I'm disobeying God and his commands, even though my familial relations, right? We would claim to be following the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm going to serve these other gods. I'm going to serve my own heart and my own pride, and I'm going to convince myself that I'm safe. And Moses, in speaking to that heart, in anticipating that thought, he warns them. He warns not just that individual, but the community. He says, beware, lest any of you, an individual or even a full clan or tribe, begins to think this way. Because the loving thing to do would be to warn them. And the presumption with that warning is that they would be able to respond, to change their minds. He says that the person who blesses himself in his heart, rather than walking in the blessings of God, uh, right, says, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. The Lord will not be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against that man and the curses written in this book will settle upon him and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. And so the warning for them, which also exists as a warning to those in our generation, is that the Lord will not forgive a person who presumes their safety while blatantly disobeying God. All right, and so like that is pretty explicit, that, that forgiveness, that righteousness is something to be pursued, to be sought out by faith and to intentionally disregard it and presume that, well, God's merciful anyway. God's forgiving anyway, surely, I'm safe. He's probably just going to forgive everybody in the end as it is. And so it doesn't matter what I do with this life, even if I'm intentionally stubborn in my own heart, even if I'm intentionally disobeying God, rebelling against him and choosing to live life my own way. All the nations will say, why has the Lord done thus to this land? What caused the heat of his great anger? Then the people will say, it is because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt and went and served other gods and worshiped them, gods whom they had not known and whom he had not allotted to them. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled 
against this land, bringing upon it all the curses written in this book. And the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and fury and great wrath and cast them into another land as they are this day. And so what's interesting is Moses is prophesying about this potential future where if there is a family or clan or tribe that rejects God, God will eventually cast them out of the land that had been promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That they would be cast out and the next generation would eventually begin to wonder, that other nations would begin to ask, what happened here? Why did the Lord do this? Why was his anger kindled against them in this way? And the response is that they abandoned the covenant of the Lord. All right. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled. And so does this sort of thing happen because God had decreed beforehand that these people would rebel against him, that they would have no choice in the matter? No, I don't believe so. It seems as though it rests solely upon their choice to abandon the covenant that God had made with them. And that God, as we'll find out, desires for them to come back into relationship with him. Did he choose for them to sin, not being able to respond to his commands? No, they made that choice on their own. They said in their own heart, right, stubbornly choosing to rebel against God and abandon his covenant. It's because they made that choice. And yet God speaks to his people, even his chosen people, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and warns them in this moment. And he expects that they would respond. They're accountable to their choices. Verse 29, it says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. And so God certainly has not revealed all things to us, but what he has revealed, the scriptures say, belong to us and our children, that we're obligated to, to live in response to what we know, that we're accountable because of what we know, that we should do the things that he's commanded us. And so what I want to suggest is in this moment in which the people are prophesied long before they even enter the land that they may one day be cast out of it. Is God rooting for this kind of destruction? No. He's telling them now because he's warning them out of love. How about Deuteronomy 30, the, the very next verse, verse 1. And when all these things come upon you, and the blessing, uh, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. And so what's interesting is God, even though he's prophesying about their betrayal and their being scattered, he already has in place a contingency plan in which he invites them back. 
And what does it hinge upon? It hinges upon them calling to their mind, remembering what God had commanded, remembering what God had warned, and choosing to return to the Lord their God, to, to follow him with all of their heart and their soul. And as a result, God will restore, God will have mercy, God will gather. And so what I want to point out, the, the amount of uh, effect that their own choices have in their future. Okay, it seems as though God continues to describe that he's, he's set these things before them and now they are choosing what to do with it. They are choosing what to do with their own heart, whether they hold to their own stubbornness or do they love God and obey him with their heart and their soul. It seems as though much of it rests upon their choices and the thing that God is rooting for is relationship with them to invite them back into his favor and blessing, to invite them back into experiencing the promises that he gave to Abraham. That God is inviting them back to this and, and telling them how to come back. He's letting them know because it's a legitimate option that he sets before them. In verse 15, skipping down a little bit, he says, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. And so when God speaks this way, it very much seems as though the people have a choice. If you, then the Lord will bless you, right? It, the logic is all built within this moment, and it seems to be, once again, up to their own hearts. In this case, it even goes as far to suggest that they might love the Lord their God by walking in his ways, right? So that they could choose to cling to stubbornness and pride, or they could choose to follow him, to love him, Right? To obey him with their heart and their soul. To love him with all their heart. And so it's interesting to think of, of this idea of faith. To what degree are we responsible for our faith? To what degree are, are we accountable to our choices and our actions? Or are they completely out of our control? Are we fated to them? And so it's interesting to think through this because... In this moment, he, what he's calling them to isn't just simply a faith that believes that God exists. It's not simply a faith that believes the things that God speaks, but it's, it's a faith in which we lovingly walk with him in this life. It's this believing loyalty. It's this loyal covenantal love that we have with God that we walk with him and although we will stumble, as we've seen, right, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob already do. But by having this commitment, this covenant, this love for God, we get to walk with him, and he desires that for us. It seems as though this text is suggesting that we have a degree of ownership and responsibility over our faith and our affections, the things that we pursue in this life, whether it's God or the things of this world.
And so they've got to choose. Verse 17, he says, But if your heart turns away and will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Right? And so he presents them with the choice and he is telling them the outcomes of those choices. And not only that, he tells them the answer that he desires for them to choose. He says, therefore, choose life. Okay, choose life. He's, he's given them a multiple choice test. And then he's like, and just so you know, the, the answer you want is the life one. Right? This is what I have for you. I have blessing and favor for you. I have a relationship for you. And I'm inviting you into this. But I'll still let you freely choose whether this is what you want. I'll let you make up your own mind. He says, therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob to give them. And so God acknowledges that even though Abraham, Isaac and Jacob are their fathers, that they are children of Abraham, so to speak. He's willing to let them choose. He's willing to let them choose even being cast out of the land that he had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That even though they are related to Abraham, if they lack the faith of Abraham, if they lack the believing loyalty for God, he'll let them make that choice and honor that choice more then he honors their relationship that they happen to have with Abraham. Generations later, Isaiah chapter 1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have utterly despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? And so generations later, after the times of the kings and these other kings were listed in Isaiah's day, he's speaking prophetically, right, to Judah, Jerusalem, Israel, he's calling them out. He's, he's letting them know the state of their heart. And he asks this question. Why will you be struck down? Like, well, why do you think this is a good idea to commit to the choices that you've made in which you've forsaken 
the Lord, right? Or as Moses had said previously, abandoned the covenant of the Lord. He says, why will you continue to rebel? The prophetic word spoken through Isaiah to the very people of God, the people of Abraham, is one in which it suggests that they have a choice about their rebellion. And if that isn't the case, then this is a very peculiar prophecy coming from God, because why would you ask that if they have no control over it? Why would you warn them if they have no ability to listen to the warning? Right? It's kind of peculiar to think that. And so the prophet Isaiah asks on behalf of God, Why will you continue to rebel? It seems to suggest that to a degree our faith, our relationship, our pursuit of God, we're partly accountable for. That we're partly responsible for. And to what degree that is, we'll continue to explore together as a church family. But I want to suggest that we are able to respond and thereby responsible for that response. And he will judge them when they don't respond to his warnings and invitations. Skipping down to verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord. Okay, so once again, it's an invitation to, to listen and obey, to listen and respond. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. He's comparing the city of God to Sodom and Gomorrah. All right, hear the word of the Lord. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Right, it, it once again is suggesting as though they have a degree of control over whether or not they listen, whether or not they pay attention to the teaching and instruction that God has for them. That it's not as though God had predetermined their choices for them. Okay? He says, verse 11, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. And so what's interesting here is that even though these people are rebellious and unjust, that they're still participating in some degree of religious ceremony, right, that was passed on to them from Moses but their hearts aren't really in it, right? And that as a result, God uh, is displeased. He doesn't delight in these things. Remember in Hebrews 11, it says that uh, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And that when we read about Abel, it was by faith that Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. And so it seems as though these people, even though they are living in the land, even though they are participating in sacrifices in the temple, that their faith has become disconnected from their activities. That they might be in some ways obeying the, the commands of God's, at least, God, at least in regards to these rituals, but they're not loving God in the process. And it's very apparent to God as he looks upon them. He says, when you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the callings, uh, the calling of convocations. I cannot endure 
iniquity and solemn assembly, that they were mixing a lifestyle of sin that was practiced while showing up at the temple as though God doesn't really care what we do, right? Surely I'm safe, right? I'm even making sacrifices to God. But yet God is unable to endure they're trying to mix those two things. He says, your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. That it wasn't just their heart attitude towards God, but it was also their relationship with the people around them in which they were bringing about injustice. And even though they are the family of Abraham, and even though they're participating in these religious ceremonies, God is displeased by religiosity that has clearly been disconnected from their faith. He tells them, the very people, the promised people of God, that he will hide his eyes, that he will not listen. And he does so on the basis of their disobedience and rebellion and injustice that they show their community. And yet God pleads for them to act. Okay, check this out, this next verse. Verse 16, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. That God, even though he's correcting them in this moment and calling them out for their empty worship, he then tells them what to do. As if it's up to them. Right? He tells them to, to turn, to wash, to make themselves clean, to stop doing evil, to learn to do good, to seek justice. All of these things, he tells them how to make it better. He tells them how to make it right. He tells them how to come back into favor and relationship and blessing with him. And it absolutely depends on them. It's as if he's not going to make the choice for them. He will respect the choice that they make. And this actually very much reminds me of the language that James writes in the New Testament. In which he says, Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. He will lift you up. And so James very much says the same kind of thing. He's pleading, uh, he's pleading with the people saying, right, you need to make a choice. You need to cleanse your hands, you sinners. 
right? You need to, to do this because God, I'll let you know where his heart is. He yearns jealously over the spirit in you. He desires to have relationship with you and he awaits our response to his generous gospel, right? He wants us to humble ourselves in order to obtain the grace that he gives, to submit ourselves to God, to draw near to God, to cleanse our hands, to purify our hearts, to, to mourn and weep, to humble ourselves before the Lord, right? These are things that we apparently have control over that we can choose to humble ourselves or hold to our pride in our stubbornness, presuming that we're safe in our sin. But no, God warns the people of the Old Testament and he warns people in this new generation in which the gospel has been proclaimed. Humble yourselves. I want us to recognize that yes, God has completed the work of salvation on the cross. Yes, God sends his spirit to convict the world of sin and judgment and righteousness, to, to draw people to himself. God sends his disciples into the world to proclaim the gospel, to invite people to repentance and baptism in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He is faithful to send people into the harvest field to draw people in. But it sounds as though we must choose whether we respond to the generous offer that he makes. Back to Isaiah verse 18, he says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Right? It's as though he's trying to convince you that this is the wise thing to do. He knows what he wants for his relationship with you. But he's trying to reason with you to come to the same conclusion, right? Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet. He doesn't pretend as though we're perfect, right? Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. And so God reasons with us. He invites us to this conversation. He welcomes your questions and your struggles. And the stumbling block is this, relying on our own self-righteousness, relying on our nationality and who we're related to, stumbling over our pride, refusing to believe humbly in the Jesus, the Messiah that God provided for us to be forgiven and to acknowledge our need for him to save us, right? Like Jesus is the stumbling block because we'd much rather stand on our own merit and our own good works and our own religious activity. But no, we've got to humble ourselves. We've got to receive the gift that he gave. And although we did not earn the gift and although we could, have not, could not have forced him to give the gift, it seems as though we have a choice. And whether or not we receive the gift that he gives. And so when we receive him, he forgives us. He washes us white as snow, white like wool. We are clean. And for the believer in Jesus, there is now therefore no condemnation. That we can boldly go before his throne of grace. Verse 19. If you are willing and obedient. 
you shall eat the good of the land, but if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And so that's clearly speaking of the Old Testament and their possessing the land that God had promised them. But we too are under risk of judgment if we stand on our own merit before a holy God. Rather than confessing our sin and being forgiven, cleansed of all unrighteousness, we will be found guilty according to the law that we have clearly broken. But notice what he says. He says, if you are willing and obedient. He is continuing to reason. He's continuing to plead with his people, desiring for them to come back. Verse 26, I'm skipping way down. And I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called a city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. And so notice prophetically, he's saying, if you are willing, if you obey, if you repent, you will be redeemed by righteousness, right? He's once again compelling us to respond. But if we continue to commit to our sin and rebel against him, we're going to be broken together. If we choose to forsake the Lord and his covenant and his relationship that he gives and offers us, then we shall be consumed. And so notice that whether through Moses or Isaiah here, when God speaks prophetically, he warns, he pleads, he desires a response from his people. It suggests that it's up to us, that we must respond with repentance and faith, that we must turn from rebelling against him, turn from sinning against him, turn from the injustices that we would commit against our neighbors. We must turn to him and trust in him and right, obey him with our heart and our soul to love him with all that we are. That it sounds as though to a degree our faith is up to us and God has already made plain his desires for us. Ezekiel 33, and you, son of man, God speaking to Ezekiel, say to the house of Israel, right? The very people named after Jacob, okay? The, the name that God gave Jacob, Israel. Thus have you said, surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us, and we rot away because of them. How then can we live, right? The, the, the nation of Israel, they're saying like, hey, well, it's too bad. Like we messed up. We sinned our transgressions. We're getting the consequences of our actions. There's, there's nothing we can do about it. We're, we're going to die. How, how can we live now? And so God's like, this is what they're saying. And it's almost as if they're thinking that their fate is sealed, that there's no hope, that there's nothing that they can do about their circumstances. And this is what he says in verse 11, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. All right, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. All right, so he, he lets us know this is what he's rooting for. He's rooting for repentance. He's rooting for life. 
right? Choose life. And then he even tells them again, he's like, and just in case you're wondering what I think about you, turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? All right, God, what God does have pleasure in, right? God is pleased by faith, as we've read in Hebrews 11. But here he's saying he's pleased when the wicked turn back to him and experience the life that he gives. And so he tells them, turn back, turn back. Israel is asking the question, right? How, how then can we live? And God's saying, Ezekiel, go tell them, why will you die? Why will you die, O house of Israel? This is up to you, right? This is up to you. You can make the choice as to whether or not you repent, as to whether or not you turn back and experience the life that I freely offer. And so what I want to point out is that it, it isn't as though God irresistibly forces them to repent. No, he pleads with them. And he also offers them the option to, to live life their own way. Verse 17. Yet your people say, the way of the Lord is not just, when it is their own way that is not just. When the righteous turn from his righteousness and does injustice, he shall die for it. And when the wicked turns from his wickedness and does what is just and right, he shall live by this. Yet you say the way of the Lord is not just. O house of Israel, I will judge each of you according to his ways. And so what's interesting is in this moment, at this time, they're accusing God of being unjust. They want past works of righteousness to count for today, regardless of their present disobedience. And they, they want those who have done wicked things to be forever faded and sealed in those choices where they have no option to repent and experience the life that God desires for them to have. And, right, and God says, listen, you're claiming that I'm unjust, but God is permitted to arrange salvation and forgiveness and mercy and righteousness as he, see, he sees fit. It's as he wills. And if God determines that if someone turns to him by faith and trusts in him and seeks him to obey him, to have this believing loyalty, this love as they seek after him, his kingdom, his righteousness. And if he wants to give that person the gift of righteousness, then he gets to choose to do that. It seems as though he's arranged salvation in such a way that he chose to base it upon, to hinge it upon our choosing to receive the gift that he freely gives. It's hinged upon our turning from wickedness and doing what is just and right, repenting. Or as the New Testament more clearly communicates, receiving him, believing in his name, right? Placing our trust in Jesus as our Lord and our Savior. Okay, like that's what he calls us to do. That's how he chose to determine the work of salvation. He did all of the work. He makes it available and he invites us to receive it. And he even pleads that we would make the wise choice. And in this moment, the people are critiquing God about him being unjust. 
And that accusation of God being unjust is also, I'm going to argue, be presented in the book of Romans when we end up getting to that passage. They will accuse God of being unjust, but he can ordain and arrange salvation as he sees fit. And if he's going to base it upon faith that is uh, credited as righteousness, then he's allowed to do that. And God, even though they are in the wrong, lays out a path for them to experience the life that he desires for them. But he's not willing to change the truth in order to accommodate them. He's not willing to redefine sin in order to make it more comfortable for them. No, they, like us, have to choose to humble themselves in order to receive the mercy that God makes available. John chapter 5, verse 39, when Jesus is speaking to descendants of Abraham and those who even are studying the, the word of God, and you might think like, man, that combination's got to be like the perfect combination to experience God's blessing. But this is what Jesus says. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they, the scriptures, that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And so even in the New Testament, Jesus seems to indicate it's the human heart's choice to refuse, to, to come to Jesus, to receive, to believe in his name that determines whether or not we'll experience the life that he makes available to us. All right, he doesn't force that or compel us uh, to, to receive that life he, he has it plainly written in the scriptures, right? The work of his spirit, the work of the word, the work of the church in trying to proclaim and bear witness to who he is invites all people to come to Jesus. But in their heart, they have to choose whether or not they receive or refuse. And we know what Jesus desires. We know what his heart cries out for. He offers the invitation freely. He stands at the door and knocks and he says, let me come into your life. Let me be the Lord and Savior of your life. And so when we look at these scriptures, we come to terms with the fact that our faith to a degree is our responsibility. Right? We can't just say, well, what am I going to do? Like, I'm fated to live this way. I'm going to experience the consequences for my sin. No, God's like, this is what you need to do. You need to turn. Turn back. Right? Or, or if, if I'm experiencing uh, a desolate land in my life, if it's clear that I've been cast out and scattered like the people of Israel when they ab abandoned God and his covenant, choose life. Come back. Right? That's what God invites us to. And that invitation is still available today. Even if you've lived a, a long life, decades of wickedness, we can choose today to turn back, to choose life, to experience the blessings that God has for us, to be made right in his sight, that even though, yes, our sins are as scarlet, we'll be made white as snow. And it's only found in Jesus. It is dangerous to presume safety because of God's mercy, because of God's kindness, because of all of these things when he's made it available 
and he's begging us to partake of the salvation and family and forgiveness and freedom that he offers us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, that even though your word is hard at times, it is correcting and it's communicated out of, out of love and out of a warning that can genuinely be received. That, Lord, your offer of salvation is one that is genuine, that you do so with love and affection, that you desire to gather people to yourself, that you desire that all people would come to repentance and life, that, that you don't delight in the death of the wicked. You're not rooting for our disaster as humans, God, but you want us to experience life. And I pray, God, that as we, we think about that, Lord, that we would offer that gift to others too. That if we've already chosen to, to obey you with our heart and our soul, to love you with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that we would also offer that invitation to others, recognizing that they might respond. That, Lord, we pray that we would be a faithful witness as your church Lord God, that we would be an example to our community, to the, to the neighbors, to the co-workers, to the people at school, uh, to all of these people around us, that Lord, they would see hope in us, that through us, we as your ambassadors would be pleading for them to respond, be reconciled to God. And so Lord, I pray that you would build in us a confidence, a joy in your salvation, a means to communicate and to invite, a way to live our lives before you that makes it obvious who we love and who we serve. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Take care.